Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 33, for November 13, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. 75 years ago, November 1942, the United States launches its first major offensive operation of World War II, an invasion of French North Africa. Operation Torch cut German access to Middle Eastern oil and set the stage for future Allied operations in Sicily, Italy, Greece, and France. Did the arrival of the first American troops in the modern Middle East also set the stage for the next 75 years of American policy in the region? We had, therefore, two strategic decisions. To instrumentalize the Middle East for the sake of larger U.S. strategic interests and to adopt a zero-sum approach toward U.S. relations between Muslims and Jews. These were not the only foundational principles of U.S. Middle East policy, but I think it's fair to say that they have certainly been present and at times dominant for the last 75 years, and both were products of torch. That was Institute Executive Director Robert Satloff speaking at a Washington Institute policy forum alongside historian Elliot Cohen on November 7. Listen as these two distinguished scholars debate the significance of Operation Torch in shaping American Middle East policy in the decades since. After this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. First, we'll hear from Robert Satloff, Executive Director and Howard P. Berkowitz Chair in U.S. Middle East Policy at the Washington Institute. He's the author of Among the Righteous, Lost Stories of the Holocaust's Long Reach into Arab Lands. So among the many contributions of a think tank uh, is that um, if it should provide any contribution, it should be to provide context. And since there's um, uh, nothing happening in the Middle East these days, um, this dull moment is an opportunity to step back and ask a question. When was American policy in the Middle East born? When was American policy in the Middle East born? Of course, policymaking is an iterative process. Successive presidents and their administrations inherit from their predecessors, adapt for changing times, bequeath new legacies to their successors. But there are key moments, foundational moments, pivotal decisions that do define the contours of policy for decades. They loom large both as moments that triggered a sharp departure from what came before and as milestones etched in our memory. When it comes to the contemporary Middle East, two landmark events spring to mind. President Roosevelt's March 1945 meeting aboard the USS Quincy with the founder of Saudi Arabia, uh, King Abdulaziz bin Saud, which laid the groundwork for the strategic bargain, uh, energy for security, that has been at the core of that relationship ever since. A second uh, foundational movement is three years later, May 48 when uh, President Truman disregarded the advice of George Marshall and his other senior advisors and recognized Israel, uh, ensuring that America would play a pivotal role in, uh, uh, in the Arab-Israeli set of issues ever since. Now, there have been other candidates for foundational moment, birthday for American Middle East policy. Some will cite um, Truman's decision to protect Turkey and Greece, the Truman Doctrine, which made the defense of the Eastern Mediterranean and, uh, by extension, um, the broader Middle East, 
a key aspect of American policy. Others will jump up ahead to Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy in 73-74, which laid the groundwork for what we now know as the modern peace process and America's engagement in that. Others will point at George H.W. Bush's decision to lead an international coalition to reverse Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, which was the starting gun for 25 years of America's engagement in that part of the Middle East. Still, I think that if historians were to be polled on the topic, um, the two really foundational moments would be Roosevelt ibn Saud and Truman's recognition of Israel. I think they would come out first place. And indeed, if you look back at the last 70 years, in many ways, the history of U.S. policy in the Middle East has been the history of presidential efforts to mitigate between these two very different initiatives and to find the magic balance between commitments made separately to Ibn Saud and to the Israelis in uh, 45 and then 48. Still, I think that another episode is at least as and perhaps more deserving for the role it played in setting the terms for America's long-term relationship in this part of the world. Um, now, this seismic event is rarely noted, usually forgotten. It never claimed a spot in our collective memory that its historical significance, I believe, merited. Its obscurity is rooted in part in the fact that it occurred in one of the most remote corners of the region, with a focus on a country about which Americans today know less visit less, and have less engagement with than just about any other country in the Middle East. I'm referring to the country of Algeria. Add to that the fact that this episode left virtually no obvious imprint or lasting scars on the region's politics. And combine that with the fact that it is commonly viewed just as a transitory moment without direct impact on other key historical events or ongoing influence in U.S. policy. Now, I believe those judgments are wrong, um, and so my sort of radical rethinking of this is to uh, invite all of you here today and to ask Elliot to lob as many arrows at this thesis as he likes at the idea that um, Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa, um, is in fact a far more important the most under-recognized important event in the modern history of America's engagement with the Middle East. Uh, the 75th anniversary of this event is tomorrow, um, and so that is why we are all here today. Uh, Torch was America's first offensive military operation of World War II, the most ambitious amphibious landing until that point in history, the first time U.S. troops landed on Arab soil since the Barbary Wars of the late 18th and early 19th century. It was a pivotal moment in the war, perhaps one of the most pivotal. It is largely forgotten today. Everyone remembers the later D-Day, the one at Normandy, but few remember the first D-Day, the one, as you see here, three landing zones, um, the furthest west being at Safi, south of Casablanca, Oran in the middle, and then east of um, Algiers, um, in Sidi Farouche, um, the furthest, uh, the furthest east. Why is it that uh, that we forget today that uh, hundreds of ships sailed thousands of miles through U through U uh, boat infested waters? 
um, to um, to launch this actually quite uh, crazy scheme to attack um, in uh, North Africa and go around Europe um, uh, to open a second front. Why is it that few remember this? Well, my theory is simple. It's because of who our enemy was, uh, our enemy being our once and future allies, the French. It was the greatest amphibious invasion in history, but um, it was against a neutral country. And America had never before attacked a neutral country, Vichy France. Uh, there are no great war films about Torch, and it's not really surprising. Uh, not too many great scripts can be, can be written about the romance of attacking a neutral country. Tomorrow, as I said, will be the first ever Torch commemoration on the Mall at the World War II Memorial. It will last, according to the director of the World War II Memorial, it will last all of 20 minutes. Uh, 20 minutes. So we're actually not here today to discuss Torch's role in World War II, although that's a great topic and perhaps we'll get into it. Um, uh, we're going to talk about Torch's role in what this institute focuses its mission on, namely the Middle East and the development of U.S. Middle East policy. Now, it's not because Torch succeeded against all odds as a military operation, uh, the critical first step in the victory over Nazi Germany, that it deserves this recognition as a milestone in American Middle East policy. In fact, Torch had no lasting military impact on the region. Uh, there were no naval bases, airfields, or long-term deployments left from America's presence in North Africa. Indeed, it's virtually impossible, impossible to travel through North Africa and see any residue or artifact from the invasion. Uh, when I visited Algeria a few years ago, Algeria being the main target of Torch because Algiers was the capital of French North Africa, and I went to the Commonwealth Cemetery, I was surprised to see that there was no American cemetery. In fact, there is no place in all of Torch's target battlefields where any American um, uh, um, uh, rests um, having given her, uh, uh, his life American soldiers or sailors, that fateful day. Instead, all those bodies were either sent home or moved to a very moving site near the ruins of Carthage in Tunisia. Rather, Torch's lasting impact was political. It was while the proverbial dust was still being cleared from the heat of battle in the hours immediately after the, the, the troops came ashore um, in Algiers that two key decisions were made that I believe had profound impact both on the course of a critical aspect of the war and on America's long-term role in the Middle East. Uh, what were those decisions? The first decision was to discard the pre-invasion plan to replace North Africa's Vichy French governors with nationalist but anti-fascist officers. In its place, U.S. generals uh, and diplomats opted for a hastily designed expedient, an alternative, an arrangement with um, Admiral uh, Jean-Francois Darlin, the number two in the Vichy hierarchy, who happened to be in Algiers just by luck on the day of the invasion, a deal with him in exchange for unfettered access across North Africa to fight the Germans in Tunisia. Uh, the result was that, with the endorsement of American forces and diplomats, the fascists retained power in the region. Here you see this uh, famous picture um, 
the only one who's smiling really is the American diplomat. Ike is not too happy on the far left. Um, uh, standing next to Ike is uh, Jean-Francois Darlin, the um, uh, admiral of the fleet, the number two of Vichy France. Uh, standing next to him is uh, Mark Clark, um, uh, uh, Eisenhower's um, number two for the invasion of North Africa, who then uh, created the Fifth Army and um, uh, led the invasion of Italy uh, in 1943. On the far right is Robert Murphy. Um, Murphy is, if anybody, is the sort of villain of my story. Um, uh, he is um, uh, uh, he's responsible. He was uh, uh, ordered by Roosevelt to be his personal emissary in North Africa from um, uh, 40, 41 on. Um, his principal mission was to, uh, to to make sure that the French didn't shoot back when um, uh, when the Americans were to invade, and he spent a, a year and a half trying to um, uh, work with various opposition groups and and uh, um, uh, unhappy uh, generals and admirals to try to convince them that uh, when the time comes for the eventual American invasion, uh, they 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 should welcome the invading forces. He failed miserably. Um, uh, and the French did shoot back, um, as we'll I'll say a little bit more about this. Um, uh, and his other plans, namely to find an alternative French general to, uh, to be the figurehead leader of North Africa, also failed miserably. Um, but um, uh, despite this, uh, you can see how pleased he is to have arranged this uh, alternative strategy at the very last minute, taking advantage of the fact that... Um, um, uh, Pétain's number two was in Algiers on the day of the invasion. And instead of finding an alternative leadership, he did the deal directly with, um, with him, with Darlan. Now, the original plan, admittedly, was just the transfer of power from one set of colonial officers to another. But the plan had within it the seeds of a profound political and ideological shift that over time would have had a major impact on how France ruled the territories. Um, this was, we should remember, the first opportunity that the Allies had to apply any of the principles of the war to liberated territories. North Africa were the first, was the first you know, inch of Axis-controlled territory that the Allies um, arrived at. Um, uh, FDR had famously described to the people of the region um, a great jihad of freedom that the Americans were leading. But instead, when the Allies did arrive, they balked and ultimately punted. So instead, what Torch gave birth to was the first chapter of an instrumentalist strategy toward Arab lands, namely that um, what America's role in Arab lands is to use it to achieve other aims, in this case, to pass through Algeria and Morocco in order to get to Tunisia to fight the Germans, um, rather than having a, um, uh, a goal and, uh, to engage with the lands themselves, a very different approach than, say, we had as we marched our way through Europe or through Asia as we liberated lands in those parts of the world. The second uh, big decision of Torch, which... I think had uh, longer-term implications, revolved around the fact that immediately upon the landing in North Africa, um, allied forces, especially the Americans, came face-to-face -face with uh, what I call the Jewish question. 
Now, of course, this is a term from a different context, um, but it does apply here. Um, by November 42, many of the details of what eventually would be called the Holocaust were well known. It was in November 42 that the State Department publicly confirmed reports of Nazi plans to annihilate the Jews of Europe. And just six weeks after Torch, 12 allied governments issued a joint statement vowing retribution for those responsible for the extermination of Jews. Now, the situation in North Africa was no less known, although it obviously of much different um, order of magnitude than in Europe. Steady stream of diplomatic reports and journalistic accounts um, outlawed the, uh, the application of Vichy laws, stripping Jews of French citizenship, denying them of the rights to live, work, and study, um, and stories of the thousands of Jews who themselves were in French concentration or punishment camps in North Africa. Those were terms that uh, the French used to describe these camps, not, uh, not terms that were ascribed to them by outsiders. Um, I'll just, it's a little historical quirk. Um, uh, not that the situation in Algeria and in Europe were by any means um, comparable, but uh, one, um, uh, one connection, um, there were only two places in the world where Jews actually lost their citizenship, became stateless um, uh, during uh, World War II. Um, one of them, of course, you know, Germany and Austria. Um, the other is Algeria, where um, uh, 150 some odd thousand Jews were stripped of their citizenship by Vichy law and um, uh, uh, were rendered stateless. And that was the situation in which the American forces found 150,000 Jews when the Allies arrived on November 8th. Now, it's important to remember, until Torch, the situation facing Jews for the Roosevelt administration was a very faraway problem. Um, you know, horrible, deplorable, but a faraway problem. With Torch, however, for the first time, and remember this is a, nearly a year before the invasion of Italy, a year before they came into contact with Nazi-run camps in Europe, Torch put American troops in control of territories directly where Jews were facing government-ordained and implemented persecution and where, where um, many of them, thousands of them, were in concentration camps. Uh, there's an additional wrinkle to the story, um, uh, uh, which only adds pathos, um, uh, and that's the, um, a story that I came across when I first started doing research on this topic 15 years ago. It's the, the story of the, the nearly 400 um, Jews who were the partisans of the Algerian um, Jewish resistance movement who um, helped make possible the entry of allied forces. It's a fantastic story. I won't go into details now, um, just to... Um, uh, remind for history, this gentleman, um, uh, his name is Jose Albuquerque, 20 year old medical student who led uh, 377 young men on the night of the Allied invasion um, to take over the city of Algiers, literally arresting the admirals and generals and prefects um, and cutting all the, the, the wires and, um, and taking over the city on the night of the Allied invasion. Um, uh, um, uh, making it possible for um, the allies in Algiers um, to, to, to walk in, not without firing a shot, but with much, much less um, uh, response than in the other two landing zones. And in fact, the number of American dead in Algiers is much, much less than in the other two landing zones. 
precisely because of the exploits of these young men. Um, uh, now, uh, oh, and so my view is, for what it's worth, um, uh, this, rel this Jewish resistance movement is the most consequential of the war. Um, it's the one that nobody knows about, but it's the only one that actually changed the course of the war and the only one that saved American lives in the process of doing it and uh, deserves, therefore, I think, a special note of, um, of memory. Now, for American generals and diplomats on the day after Torch, pivoting from the original strategy for new leadership in North Africa to a partnership with the existing Vichy officers, um, the Jewish question was not a theoretical issue. It was an urgent and practical issue, and it revolved around three very specific questions. You know, what to do with the hundreds of conspirators who risked their lives to help the Allies, what to do with about 8,000 Jews in concentration camps, and what to do with the 150,000 Jews who were rendered stateless by Vichy laws. Again, I'm not going to go into details um, except to say that the answer given by Murphy and given by the leaders on all these three issues, the narrow issue of the conspirators, the, the, um, all the way to the broader issue of what to do about Jewish rights, was do nothing to assist the Jews, even if it uh, doesn't come at the expense of the Muslims. I'll say that again. It was to do nothing at the, to assist the Jews, even if it doesn't come at the expense of Muslims. Um, uh, where did they get this from? Um, uh, I can go into some great detail if you'd like, but my view is they essentially got this from the French. This was the Vichy strategy um, uh, applied um, uh, in North Africa that um, the American officials on the day after Torch, when they recognized they had this urgent set of issues, just adopted. And they took um, essentially from um, Darlin and his associates and the local prefects. In Algiers 42-43, therefore, was born a zero-sum approach to America's relations with Jews and Muslims, um, uh, an idea that became a subtext, not the only text, but a subtext of U.S. policy toward the Middle East for decades to follow. It's important to underscore that this was not the product of the rise of Zionism, or the fear of losing access to strategic oil resources. It was not a reaction to Arab rioting against Jewish empowerment or demands from Arab or Muslim religious figures that the masses would revolt if the United States did anything to assist the Jews. In fact, none of that happened. None of that happened in 42 and 43. On the contrary, there are numerous examples of Arab public figures siding with the Jews, opposing laws against Jews. Rather, the zero-sum approach was a gift, in my view, from the Americans, from, from the French to the Americans. Now, this isn't to say there wasn't anti-Semitism elsewhere in the U.S. government, or that even U.S. leaders all the way to Roosevelt uh, didn't have certain anti-Semitic views. But North Africa was where those views came face-to-face -face with local politics, and real decisions had to be made. And the result... Um, was betrayal of the Jews, with no discernible benefit to the Arabs. And that, I think, is very important. So um, uh, we had, therefore, two strategic decisions, or two major decisions. 
to instrumentalize the Middle East for the sake of larger U.S. strategic interests, and to adopt a zero-sum approach toward U.S. relations between Muslims and Jews. These were not the only foundational principles of U.S. Middle East policy, but I think it's fair to say that they have certainly been present and at times dominant for the last 75 years, and both were products of torch. Now, why does any of this matter? So first, as an historian, I always believe in the maxim that to know where you're going, you got to know where you're coming from. It was exactly 15 years ago, Condi Rice offered her famous line, 60 years of pursuing stability at the expense of democracy has produced neither. Well, if you add 60 to the 15 years that have passed, you get 75. And that 75 is exactly today, which is torch. Um, now, actually, my view is uh, her analysis is quite debatable. I think we, we did get quite a lot in those 60 years. But it's important to know that uh, where and when that policy began. It began really in Algeria in November 42. Second, I think it's useful to delve deeply into how it transpired. Yes, there was a grand strategy. Roosevelt was clear in his instructions to Murphy, envisioning no real change in the local French administration. That all he wanted was a compliant partner to enable Allied transit against North Africa. But as the plan as conceived became very different in practice. That plan fell apart in the heat of battle. An alternative was arranged on the spot. Through It was improvised. The improvisation was led by um, diplomats principally. And that improvisation, doing a deal with the local guy in charge, essentially became American policy and has been American policy in the Middle East ever since. What a wonderful example of the maxim that nothing is as permanent as the temporary. And then the zero-sum attitude, third, the zero-sum attitude between Arabs and Jews. What do I really mean? I mean that American policy after the invasion was not even to restore Jews to the political and social status they had before the fascists arrived. I'm not talking about improving their status, just restoring their status. And the U.S. refused. All the way down the line, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, Clark, <coughs> Murphy, all the way down the line. In my view, this totally misread the relationship between Muslims and Jews, exacerbating local relations beyond all recognition. This is not to say relations between Arabs and Jews or Muslims and Jews would not have been affected by Arab nationalism, Palestine, and other issues. But I believe that the U.S. decisions taken in torch exacerbated those problems and expanded the circle of conflict. Faraway countries that otherwise would have had little contact with the events of Palestine felt it with full fury, not least because the U.S. assumed that Arabs and Jews necessarily had to have horrible relations. In other words, our actions played a role in the, in the ultimate emptying out of Arab countries of their centuries-old Jewish populations. Just, I'll give you a little vignette. Algiers was also the testing ground for decisions that came later in the war. Who arrives in Algiers in February 1943, right in the midst of the debate over whether the United States should restore Jewish rights 
John McCloy, Assistant Secretary of War. 18 months later, he becomes famous or infamous for his letter explaining why the United States can't divert military resources to bomb Auschwitz. But 18 months earlier in Algiers, McCloy uses exactly the same language and exactly the same logic to explain why rights cannot be restored to the Jews because of the fear that Arab unrest would require the diversion of U.S. military resources to address it. Almost the exact same language to explain later why not the bombing at Auschwitz. Fourth, the bureaucratic politics of the story is instructive. A key part of this was the State Department versus intelligence. State essentially arguing for the pro-Vichy anti-Jewish line and intelligence, OSS, our agents and operatives on the ground, taking the opposite view. That's largely because they were the ones most closely dealing with the resistance movement. And they, and they understood, they, they were dealing more closely with what the Jews. The Jews were at the heart of the resistance movement. Now, since OSS was only born in 1942, July, this Algiers was also the first ever clash between state and intel in our modern history. That's important to note, and I think it's, uh, I'd like to underscore this. Um, the view of State Department officials was not uniform. Key diplomats in the field were just as outraged and disgusted by the betrayal of the Jews and more broadly the betrayal of American values as were some OSS agents. It does cut across bureaucracies, um, but this idea of bureaucratic fighting was born in this um, challenge over what to do regarding the Jews. Um, just to close, it is tempting to ask what if. In a military sense, the most significant what if in my view is what if Hitler either had blocked the Armada before it attacked North Africa or if he hadn't made the foolish mistake of a last stand in Tunisia but instead had decided to come down through Spain, take Gibraltar, and cut off the Allies from behind. This, actually, I've never gotten a good answer as to why he didn't do it. Um, a defeat in North Africa, cutting us off behind would have been disastrous, certainly for our war effort, even more so for Britain. Uh, but in a political sense, two what-ifs come to mind. Would democracy have found more receptivity in North Africa and perhaps elsewhere in Arabic-speaking countries if the United States had viewed them as at least relevant for the implementation of the principles of the Atlantic Charter? Second, would the circle of Arab-Jewish conflict have been more limited to Palestine and its immediate surroundings and not spread to a much larger circle that cost countries such as Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia their substantial Jewish populations, if the United States had not fed a zero-sum attitude between these two communities? I don't know the answers to these questions. Um, I'm not sure that what-if uh, um, uh, what questions are, are always useful. But I do believe, in this case, they are worth asking. All I know is American policy in the Holocaust, American policy toward Palestine, American policy toward democracy in the Middle East, American policy toward our strategic standing in this region. All roads lead back to Algiers, and all roads lead back to Torch, November 42. That was Robert Satloff, 
Next, we'll hear from Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies and Director of the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies, which he founded. He is the author, among other things, of The Big Stick, The Limits of Soft Power and the Necessity of Military Force, and Supreme Command, Soldiers, Statesmen, and Leadership in Wartime. So I'm here as a military historian, not as a Middle East expert. Um, I'm going to be in the invidious position, perhaps, of uh, trying to explain American behavior, but I wouldn't try to justify it. And, you know, given, uh, uh, you know, I'm a Jew and a pretty Jewy Jew at that, so uh, it puts me in a bit of an invidious uh, position. And on top of everything else, I'm going to have to deal with the bombing of Auschwitz, which I did not want to, but you went there. Um, let me say, you know, Rob has done some really fantastic research on the story of the Algerian, uh, the resistance in Algiers and that movement. I think it, that is a major contribution to historiography. It's a wonderful uh, story, and I think the story of the occupation is also, it's not a wonderful story, it's a terrible story. Uh, it's a pretty deplorable story, and he's really laid that out, again, in a path-breaking way. A and I will, I will say that the... Uh, the problem of dealing with the Vichy mentality has been on my mind of late, but I'm not going to go there either. But I, I think there, there are a lot of problems with the argument. Um, and they're basically fall into two buckets, one having to do with the historiography of um, the Second World War and having to do with the context. And there's my old comrade-in-arms, Jim Jeffrey. Yeah, but not from the Second World War. <laughs> If, if, if only, things would have been a hell of a lot better, you know, Jim? So let me, uh, two historiographical sets. So the, the first is, this is a reductionist argument. Namely that, uh, and it's, I think we are all prone to this, that if this one event had just gone differently, everything else gets changed. And I think that's very rarely true. The stream of history is a set of decisions along the way. Uh, a set of events along the way, and it is very, very rare that you just say, okay, because of this decision at this moment, everything else was foreordained. Uh, I just don't believe history works that way. Secondly, I think it's really important to place Torch in the, con in, in the history of, uh, of World War II. It's not largely forgotten. I mean, military historians have written plenty about Torch, it does not occupy a large place in the American imagination, but neither does Salerno. Neither does the Lorraine campaign, which were equally consequential. Um, it was, by the way, an Anglo-American operation. There's always a bit of American solipsism in this. And the Brits, of course, in their very clever British way, had all the component commanders and Eisenhower's chief of staff were Brits, uh, which was quite clever of them. Um, it does, why doesn't it get as much attention? I think Rob correctly says, well, it's war against an ally, people who become our allies. Uh, that really is, uh, that really is pretty important. It's not the only one. Uh, the British don't talk a whole lot about their invasion of Syria and Lebanon in 1941, which was the same kind of thing. They're taking on, uh, the Vichy regime. By the way, they get into similar kind of snarl with the Free French. Uh, and they do similar kinds of things for similar reasons. That would be interesting to see, to look at the treatment of Syrian Jews in particular and see where that changed. I don't know enough. You might, 
you, as you, you know, you go down this path, it might be interesting to make some comparisons there. Uh, the reason why it's never been a particularly popular campaign with um, the American military is first, it showed there were a lot of screw-ups. I mean, it is amazing that in six months we cooked this thing up, hurled this force across the Atlantic. Again, the British actually have a lot to do with this. We can go into the sort of the details of the history of deception operations, uh, uh, naval escort, and lots of other things, plus actual British troops. But the campaign itself, the North African campaign, particularly at the very beginning, Rick Atkinson does a very good job of covering this in his uh, the first volume of his three volumes on the American War in Europe. There are a lot of screw-ups, everything from the way the landings are executed to combat loading of ships. We lose one ship with all of our radios on it. We don't make that mistake again. Uh, to the way in which air power is integrated with land forces, incompetent commanders, uh, people you've never heard of who George Marshall has to relieve. It is not a great tale. It is not a great tale. The, and that's, that's really the part after the French submit. Basically, the French fight for a couple of days. Uh, and they would have collapsed in Algiers too. I mean, this was, uh, they, they were gonna be overwhelmed anyhow. So I wouldn't even call it a kind of a war-changing event. But it's, first, it's a campaign with a lot of screw-ups. And secondly, it's important to remember the American high command did not want to do the North Africa landings. They argued very hard with Roosevelt to build up in Great Britain in 1942 and invade France in 1943. And for political reasons, Roosevelt says, no, we have to do this to sustain domestic support for focusing on, uh, on Europe. But the, basically, the American military hated the idea of fighting in North Africa because they understood it would delay the, the main drive through France. Uh, in retrospect, by the way, thank goodness they lost because the United States military would not have been in shape to take on the Wehrmacht if it had landed in France in 1943. Okay, let me, uh, my main reservations about this are context. And basically what I want to do is I want to emphasize all the things that have nothing to do with the Middle East that are a very important part of understanding this episode and the American approach. And I, I speak as somebody who has not studied this in anything like Rob's depth. A uh, little technical point, this is not the first time that uh, French territory had been liberated. There are actually lots of bits and pieces, including some islands off Canada, more importantly, major colonies in uh, Africa. Those were done under British auspices. It's the first time the Americans are doing it. But this needs to be seen in the context of larger policy towards occupied, large swaths of occupied areas throughout Europe and Asia during World War II. And I would just point out that you get similar kinds of behavior, which in retrospect look pretty appalling, in Asia. We're, we're basically, we take the Japanese army and we turn them into our occupation troops. And that happens in a number of the areas, in uh, some parts of, of Vietnam, it happens in uh, Indonesia, it happens in Korea. The, the, you know, when you're coming into these chaotic situations, the natural thing for an invading army is to say, let's have... Let, let's let the locals sort it out. And indeed, even in Germany, all of our amb uh, ambitious denazification programs go out the window in order to make cities and villages run because, it, you know, if the guy who runs the power plant is a member of the Nazi party, well, you know, you're still going to swallow hard and, and uh, keep him there. 
So there's a the, – the context for a lot of the decision-making really should be seen much more broadly. Second piece of context, de Gaulle. You have to remember Roosevelt hated de Gaulle. The British had an, had an ambivalent attitude towards de Gaulle. Churchill once said, of all the crosses I had to bear during the war, the cross of Lorraine, that's symbol of the free French, uh, was the heaviest one of all. But, but Churchill was much more sympathetic to de Gaulle. Roosevelt, from the very beginning, mistrusted de Gaulle because he saw him as a man on horseback. He saw him as a future military dictator. He saw him as a sort of a Napoleon uh, or if not – of that stature, sort of a boulanger, of uh, those of you who know your your uh, your French history, um, the kind of guy who would set himself up as a dictator. So part of what they're looking for is neutral military leaders who are simply professional. Um, and by the way, that is where we go. Now we go with Giraud, who had had a um, uh, who ends up being the governor general uh, for a while, although he's miserably unpopular who had been one of the prominent French generals in 1940, captured, escaped, and who is studiously neutral and politically completely inept and has no backing. A more important French general, somebody you've never heard of, Alphonse Jouin. So really important to remember that actually the French army does come over to the Allied side, that is the North African army. It is re-equipped with American equipment, and they all go off and fight in Italy, which is why you've never heard of them. There's only one division of Free French that uh, does uh, comes through Normandy and they go tearing off and liberate Paris against Eisenhower's wishes. But, but the bulk of the French army that fights on the American side uh, in World War II is the Vichy Army of North Africa, led by Alphonse Chouin, who, by the way, was very competent. So again, part of the overall picture here is these are the guys we want as allies and you know, free French and all that, that's not – that we don't really want that so much. Connected with this, let me recommend to uh, everybody here a very old book by William Langer, who was the head of research and analysis at the o in the OSS, but also the very – most distinguished diplomatic historian of his time, and Everett Gleason called our Vichy Gamble. You have to remember, unlike the British, we maintain diplomatic relations with Vichy all the way through. This was done, by the way, with British understanding because part of the idea is that you wanted to keep a connection there and you wanted to be able to muscle the French. And there are times when we work together with the British to keep the French in line. This gets to explaining why they don't go through Spain. We also muscle, we, we muscle both the French and the Spanish the same way. They're dependent in part on what was known as certs, certifications which allowed uh, ships carrying grain to come through the blockade. So we're actually helping feed France and Spain. We make it very clear to the French and to the Spanish, you turn on the British, you're going to starve. Also, the British, the Germans did look, by the way, at going through Spain and they concluded the terrain is miserable. I mean, it's not just a drive on the Autobahn. Uh, the logistical difficulties would be enormous and the Spanish are crazy enough to fight. They may have made one effort to bring Franco into the war in 1940. He wanted no part of it. He wanted even less of it in 1942 when the Americans are in. So it was going to be a non-starter. Wor we worried about it, but it was a complete non-starter uh, from the German point of view to drive through Spain. 
So because you have to remember there's this Vichy connection. And so the Americans are – and remember too that our ambassador to Vichy was William Leahy. Who's William Leahy? United States Admiral who ends up as the de facto chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during World War II. So kind of that's built into our policy is that we're going to have a relationship with Vichy. We don't have the same animus against them that the British do for a whole bunch of reasons because the British view is these guys left us and cut a deal with, with the Germans. Fourth piece of context. Uh, you, you mentioned, but I don't think you gave enough weight to the amount of ambient anti-Semitism in the American government back then, and particularly in the military. There's a very good book by a man named uh, Joseph Bendersky about anti-Semitism in the United States Army, and it is breathtaking. I'm not just talking about the standard kind of stuff that, you know, I'm sure many people in this room had parents who, uh, uh, who served in the forces who experienced it. I'm talking really high-level stuff where Jews were sort of associated with communists and, you know, back then the world was a different place um, and there was quite a bit, there was quite a bit of anti-Semitism. So it doesn't surprise me in the slightest uh, and, and there are a lot of other people they didn't like. They didn't like black people. Uh, you know, Eisenhower, Marshall and Eisenhower were not particularly friendly to African Americans. Let's not forget that. It was a different time and a different place. And so that I think helps shape a lot of it. Uh, and finally, in terms of context, the overwhelming focus that everybody had was on winning the war. That's what they're thinking about. How do we win the war? And all this other stuff is kind of a distraction or a drain on resources. It was, you know, it's typical American fixation on we're going to do whatever it takes to win. By the way, that I would never want to defend John McCloy, who was not an attractive human being, not a friend of the Jews. I get all that. But I also understand that that was, I think, a large part of the, uh, the Auschwitz decision. The other part is just from a technical point of view, the idea that by bombing Auschwitz you do much besides kill lots of people who are going to be killed later, I don't know. You, you know you're not going to cut rail lines. Rail lines that get cut can be fixed in two hours. Uh, I've viewed that whole sad tale as a, frankly, as a distraction from larger questions having to do with American policy uh, towards the Holocaust. It's it's a real red herring. Uh, but in any case, I think this overwhelming focus on winning the war also helps explain why you're going to you're going to listen to the people on the ground. Remember, also the people on the ground really was the State Department. The, the the lot of the sources for intelligence gathering were not the OSS. They, I mean, yes, they infiltrated some of those people in to do resistance work. It was the American consulates, which we had very deliberately kept active. That was again part of the reason for the maintaining relations with Vichy. Those are the people gathering information. The people on the ground, not surprisingly, kind of buy off into the French colonial administration's uh, view of things. Last thing I'll say. Um, I don't think you need this episode to understand American Middle East policy. I really don't. It's not hard to figure out. There's oil, and we need oil, and we want oil. There are lots and lots of Arabs and not many Jews. Who knows if this whole Jewish settlement in Palestine thing is going to work out. And besides, there are a bunch of socialists. 
So, and, and we know in 46, 47, that the Arabs really don't like this. And there are enough manifestations, whether you're looking at riots in Iraq uh, or anywhere else, to know that the Arab world is pretty vehemently opposed to the establishment of a Jewish state. So it doesn't surprise me that we ended up viewing it as a zero-sum game. Now, maybe enlightened statecraft would have said, you know, there's another way forward. I grant you that. But I don't think it's mysterious. And I don't think you have to go back to this particular story and this particular episode to say that that's, that's what you see going, that's what you see going forward. And, and I think you'd even find you'd have trouble in the historical record as you look at uh, American decision making about, particularly about um, the, uh, the question of Palestine and ultimately of Israel, I don't think you're going to see many references back to, well, this is how we handled the occupation of, of North Africa. So my bottom line is it's an important story. It's a depressing story. Um, it's a very interesting story. But, but I think it's possible to read too much into it. That was Elliot Cohn. Finally, we'll hear once more from Robert Satloff. So j just, a, just a couple of remarks. Um, first, in no particular order, um, uh, uh, you're right about the British. Actually, the, um, what people tend to forget, for example, about um, another um, very unhappy episode of the war, namely the, uh, the Farhud in Baghdad um, uh, mm -hmm. in um, uh, May, June 1st and 2nd, uh, 1941. Um, uh, this is the episode when um, uh, after um, uh, the pro-fascist uh, um, government flees, there's a pogrom against the Jews of Baghdad and hundreds of Jews are killed and thousands are injured and property is destroyed. What people tend to forget is that um, uh, the people in charge of Baghdad or surrounding Baghdad at the time were the British army. And for three days this occurred while the British, fully conscious of what was going on inside of Baghdad, um, didn't do anything. I always uh, disappoint friends of mine who don't put this episode in the context of sort of the Holocaust. I put it rather in the context of um, um, uh, uh, sort of disreputable actions by allies. Namely, the allies did nothing to intervene at a key moment. Um, uh, in this case, the Brits. So the, I, 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 uh, the, the Brits don't have clean hands either on this. Um, uh, Even that episode, again, I'm not going to defend the Brits. going to defend the Brits here. It, no, it's more complicated than you're letting on. There was a substantial Iraqi army. The Germans were actually flying into Mosul. I remember when I went to Mosul for the first time, I was really curious to see the uh, airport because there were actually German airplanes operating out of Mosul. Habaniya, which was the main airbase, was besieged by the Iraqi army. There's this uh, relief force that comes out of Jordan as a combination of Arab Legion and other things. And by the way, the first head of the Irgun, David Raziel, ends up dying on a mission for the British army against Iraq. But they, they had a very... You have to remember the Brits are actually spread very thin in the Middle East. They did not have Baghdad in an iron grip. That doesn't excuse this. But I'm just saying, again, important to bear in mind what the context is that these people are operating in. Um, Sorry, go ahead. Okay. No, that's um, – uh, De Gaulle, I think Elliot is absolutely right. Uh, um, you know, I, uh, Roosevelt disliked De Gaulle um, immensely. Um, 
Um, uh, I think my own reading is l l less for fear that de Gaulle was going to be a man on a horseback than, than just because he was a, uh, um, a self-aggrandizing uh, uh, um, uh, uh, sort of ir uh, in incompetent, but both self-aggrandizing and incompetent. His uh, the, the the opposition headquarters leaked like a sieve. I mean, he had done uh, Dakar, which was a was was a, was a huge failure. Um, uh, um, f the French officer corps hated de Gaulle, and there was really no percentage in, in, in uh, um, from the American perspective in working with de Gaulle. As it turned out, of course, um, uh, we were forced to swallow our our, our views of de Gaulle um, very soon. By by January, you know, Torch was the first week of uh, November. By January, um, uh, um, we had to. Um, uh, get de Gaulle. De Gaulle came to Casablanca for this, uh, you know, the, the blessing of uh, Churchill, um, Roosevelt, de Gaulle, and Giraud all in one photo. And then by November, um, Giraud was out, and de Gaulle was the um, was uh, was the omnipotent uh, leader of the of French forces. Um, and you know, uh, to his great credit, the day after de Gaulle became the head of the French National Committee in Algiers. Um, uh, Jewish rights were, were restored by decree, uh, by de Gaulle, um, uh, um, who didn't, who clearly did not view it so, um, um, uh, so, um, uh, problematic for his own control of the area that he, that he held back from taking the actions that the Allies didn't do uh, for an entire year. Um, uh, uh, third, um, uh, I, 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 I did not mean to, uh, to actually suggest or, or have, the, have the debate about the wisdom of bombing Auschwitz. Um, um, my, my point is just merely to, to point out that uh, Algiers was uh, sort of the off-Broadway um, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, run uh, um, uh, where a lot of these actors had um, uh, uh, the, their first chance at making these decisions. And we see them we see what, what become more famous actions later in the war first done here because this is the first place that they come face to face with these questions. So the, the you know, the, 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 the same rationale, the same logic, the same decisions are first done here and then we see them in a bigger way later in the war. Um, uh, uh, you know, you're, I, I take the point about uh, how we shouldn't read too much into it. But, um, uh, you know, we have to look for origins somewhere. And this is America's first political military engagement with Arabs and Jews on the ground. Um, uh, and important decisions were made. And um, I, I think we don't give them enough credit to take them seriously for making those decisions. Um, now we can, I get, yes, I think we do run the risk if we try to, you know, stretch this too far, but these were in many cases the same people over time. I mean, Murphy, the, the Murphy of Algiers 42 is the same Murphy who is responsible for American policy in Lebanon in 58 and who, and who brings um, uh, responsible for the um, played a role in how Eisenhower dealt with Suez and, uh, um, and, and his relationships with, 
with Arabs and Jews for the next 15 years. Um, uh, a lot of that was formed, I would argue, in the crucible of this experience. Uh, yes, we don't want to expand on it too far, but we also don't want to give it short shrift. And I think uh, it, we, we learn something if we, if we give it the credit that it's due. I'll leave it at that. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.